Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, Josiah Francis was a religious leader of the Red Stick Creek Indians who advocated war against the United States in the early 19th century. He is part of a group of Native peoples who are looking at ways to get back the power they had lost. We'll discuss the Intracoastal Waterway, Really, the Intracoastal Waterway is a combination of natural inlets and rivers, streams, and these man-made canals and waterways. And we'll talk about racing pioneer Louise Smith. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Josiah Francis, known to his people as Hillis Hajo, or Crazy Brave Medicine, was the most prominent holy man among the Creek tribe during the first two decades of the 19th century. Dr. Daniel Murphy is an associate professor of history at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. He's also the author of several articles and books, including the book Constructing Floridians, Natives and Europeans in the Colonial Floridas, 1513 to 1783. Dr. Murphy told me more about Josiah Francis. Josiah Francis is, is one of these um, historical figures that really represents the time and place he lived in in a lot of ways. And first of all, Josiah Francis, of course, the European name he received upon birth in the late 1770s. And uh, his native name, Hillis Hajo, I think it's important to note that he's one of these figures that grew up as the United States was emerging as a nation. So he was born into the uh, American Revolutionary period at a time where the British colonies were expanding. There were a lot of different competing powers in North America, the Spanish, the French as well. And he grew up as part of two cultures. He was part of one of the first generations of Native peoples that shared both a Native culture and a European culture. Josiah Francis's father was a blacksmith from South Carolina, and his mother was a Creek Indian from Alabama. He and other Natives growing up during this time experienced two worlds colliding. A lot of the traditional ways of living, along with their identity as Natives, were being eroded by U.S. expansion. They were also lacking spiritual confidence in many ways because of what had happened to them the past hundred years. They were seeing a disruption in their lifestyles, a loss of land, and they're really starting to doubt their, their spiritual moorings. So Josiah grows up in this environment, and by the time you get to the first decade of the, the 19th century, he is part of a group of Native peoples, both Creek and other, who are looking at ways to get back the power they had lost. And by 1811, the Creeks are still a very sizable, there are about 20 or 30,000 natives living in the Southeast. They're experiencing all these pressures, and they're also starting to experience some internal factionalism. Some Creeks are believing that they should accommodate the U.S. and accommodate this idea of Western values, private property, textile clothing, whereas others are starting to question this, this idea of accommodating too much and wanting to get back to wearing um, animal skins get back to not being reliant on European firearms and pots and pans, things like that. By 1811, factionalism between the Creeks intensified, 
soon to erupt into what became known as the Creek War. Some of the creeks want to continue the accommodationist course. Others want to get back to the way things were done. And Josiah Francis becomes a leader of this faction that wants to get back to doing things the old ways. This faction becomes known as the Red Stick Faction, largely because red in Creek society typically referred to war, whereas white referred to peace. Whereas the accommodationists, for the most part, wanted to maintain peace with the U.S., the Red Sticks, for the most part, wanted to resist both spiritually and militarily if possible. While Josiah Francis was becoming a leader of the Red Sticks, Tecumseh, the Shawnee chief, was promoting tribal unity and establishing a multi-tribal confederacy. And into this situation comes Tecumseh, a Shawnee Indian living in the Great Lakes, who in 1811 was really gaining from a spiritual revival movement led by his brother, a guy named Tinskwatawa, also known as the Shawnee Prophet. And the idea amongst these Indians was the idea that the best way to rebuild their strength and resist American expansion was by getting back to doing things the old-fashioned way, the way they had been doing things, and trying to kind of resurrect their spiritual connections to the past as well. So in 1811, Tecumseh travels to the southeast to meet with a lot of different Indians. He meets with the Creeks, and one of the people he influences is Josiah Francis. So when Tecumseh visited the town, Josiah Francis was one of the Indians to really listen and take his message to heart. And what Francis starts to do is he starts to create his own type of revitalization message. And as elsewhere, many Indians who are also feeling the same things and are increasingly nervous about uh, U.S. expansion start listening to him. After Tecumseh's visit, Josiah Francis began preaching a warlike version of his teachings and became known as the Red Stick Prophet. 1811, Tecumseh comes, he inspires Josiah to create his own Creek-centered revitalization movement. He begins telling his followers to give up using material goods. Uh, he even tells them to give up using uh, muskets, which was unheard of at the time in the sense that the Creeks by 1811 are heavily dependent on muskets for food and for trade items. So what he's saying is kind of a radical change. But what this does is it causes the civil war within uh, Creek society. So for two years, really between 1813 and 1814, different factions of Creeks are fighting one another. The Red Sticks, for the most part, are led by Josiah Francis and others. They're the ones fighting against accommodation and fighting for getting back to the old ways. They are faced by an assembly of different Creek Indians who support accommodation, have benefited from accommodation, but also other Native groups living nearby, some Choctaws, were fighting against the Red Sticks. Some Cherokees were fighting against the Red Sticks. A lot of these Indians felt that if they helped defeat the Red Sticks, who were against accommodation, that would actually help these different Indian groups in their relations with the United States. Turns out that's not the case, but they don't really know it at this point. In 1813, Josiah Francis and other Red Sticks traveled to Pensacola for arms and supplies. On their way back, they were attacked by American settlers, Several men were killed in a confrontation that became known as the Battle of Burnt Corn. In retaliation, the Red Sticks, under Josiah Francis, attack one of the U.S. settlements in the region, a settlement known as Fort Mims, which is near modern-day Mobile. This turns out to kill a lot of the settlers, but more importantly, it triggers great outrage in the United States that these Red Sticks and other recalcitrant Indians need to be uh, pacified. So armies are created in the neighboring states. The one in Tennessee led by Andrew Jackson, who by this point, he's not a politician, but he's becoming a well-known frontier character because he's a judge 
and he's a military figure, and he's also very colorful in a lot of other ways, involved in duels and a number of other activities. Jackson is also an avowed um, Indian fighter. He'd been fighting Indians in Tennessee for a while. He kind of looked forward to it, and he was kind of good at it, frankly. So he leads an army to Alabama with a couple of other American armies also invading and steadily um, defeats the Red Sticks. The tensions between the Creeks and the American troops led by Andrew Jackson culminated at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend on March 27, 1814. This is the final stand for the Red Sticks. They're badly defeated by Jackson's forces. Um, yet not all of them are killed. Some of the Red Sticks, including Josiah Francis, retreat further south. They go first to um, Spanish Pensacola looking for assistance, again, from either the Spanish or the British. And then they um, ultimately move, uh, I guess, further south and east into Florida from where they are to um, start merging with some of the Seminole communities already in existence in the northern tier of, of Florida. After the Red Sticks' defeat at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, Josiah Francis traveled to London to ask for help from the British, Dr. Murphy. He decides, based on an invitation from one of the departing British officers, to go to London to actually speak with British uh, royal officials about helping the Red Sticks into the future. He ends up staying there for about a year and a half. His dreams of the support from the British are dashed pretty quickly. The British in London are in no hurry to continue any kind of support for warfare in the U.S. just after the War of 1812 had concluded. So the British are nice to Josiah Francis. They give him some ceremonial gifts. They give him clothing to take home to his people, but they make no promises of wanting to um, ally with him. As the War of 1812 came to an end in 1814, the British built a fort in Spanish Florida to serve as a refuge for those fleeing white American settlement, but the fort didn't last very long. The British had hoped to use the Red Sticks to open another front on the uh, Gulf Coast, but they have a hard time getting supplies there. They are able to create this uh, one fort on the Apalachicola River, it becomes known as Prospect Bluff, but it was also called by locals at the time Negro Fort. And the reason it was called Negro Fort is because the British built this fort as a place for the Red Sticks and any escaped African Americans that wanted to join the British cause kind of gather themselves there. It's created, but it still doesn't help the British from losing the War of 1812, especially after they're defeated in New Orleans. But this is where the First Seminole War origins begin, because Negro Fort is abandoned by the British. But when they abandon it, they leave a lot of war material, a lot of supplies for the hundreds of Red Sticks, other Indian groups, and freed African Americans living there, which of course angers the United States. They didn't like the fact that many escaped slaves traveled to Spanish Florida anyway. They really didn't like the fact that uh, Red Stick Indians, and they believe Seminoles, were helping the African-Americans escape and helping them survive uh, in Florida, which to a large extent was true. In 1816, the fort at Prospect Bluff was attacked by General Andrew Jackson and 250 of his men. They fired a cannonball into the fort and struck the area where ammunition was kept, causing an explosion that killed nearly 300 men, women, and children and injured many more. Negro Fort is destroyed. Apparently, it was one of the biggest explosions in North America at that point. You could hear it from miles around. You could feel it from miles around. And when that happens, this allows the U.S. to put more forts 
closer to Spanish Florida and closer to the Seminole villages in northern Florida and in southern Georgia. This in itself sparks the Seminoles in the region to rise up, along with some of the red sticks that had come south with Josiah Francis. They began attacking U.S. settlements along the Apalachicola River and in southern Georgia. Andrew Jackson responds by attacking Seminole and Creek settlements. And really the region we're talking about here is from the Suwannee River west to Pensacola. But what Jackson wanted to do is he wanted to pacify these red sticks, these renegade Indians, he would call them. He wanted to stop the escape of African-American slaves from the U.S. to Florida. Just like he had done in the Creek War, he destroys everything in his path. So he begins going through all the villages or sweeping through the villages in this zone between Pensacola and the Suwannee River, and he's pretty successful. In 1817, Josiah Francis, disappointed by his unsuccessful attempt to gain support from the British while in London, went to Florida to organize the Creeks once again. While in Florida, Josiah Francis receives word from the British once again that they will give support and supplies to him and the Red Sticks in their fight against Andrew Jackson. Of course, when he goes back to Florida, things have changed. Negro Fort had been destroyed, so where he had gone to kind of build up this new uprising, he can't do that anymore. So he moves with a lot of the Red Sticks to a site on the Wakola River, uh, just south of Tallahassee. It's, it's on the coast, and it's also near the site of what we today call San Marcos, but at the time was a very small Spanish outpost. It was a Spanish fort. He doesn't settle on the fort, but he creates his own Francis town very near it. A lot of the other Red Sticks who had been following for a while are living nearby. So are the Seminoles. There's some Seminole villages nearby. And their hope is that at the very least, the Spanish can protect them in the St. Mark's Fort from Andrew Jackson while they rebuild themselves. On April 18, 1818, Josiah Francis and the Red Sticks felt reassured about British support when they saw a warship near Fort St. Mark's flying a British flag. Now, this was something that excited Josiah Francis and other Red Sticks because they believed if a British warship is showing up, that means they're here to help us and can take care of us. So Josiah Francis and a couple of other um, Red Sticks row out to the boat, get on the boat, welcomed on the boat, taken uh, downstairs into the hold, and that's where they discover that instead of a British warship, it's actually a U.S. warship flying a British flag. Now, to many people, both then and today, this would be considered dishonorable. But to Andrew Jackson and his followers, savages like Josiah Francis did not deserve the honors of war that other soldiers earned. So Josiah Francis and his companions are arrested. Andrew Jackson decides pretty quickly that Josiah Francis and his companions need to die. Josiah Francis asked that he be executed via firing squad because he believed that was the honorable way for soldiers to be executed. Andrew Jackson said no and decided to execute him by hanging, which he did very perfunctorily the next day right outside the, uh, the walls of St. Mark's. So in 1818, Josiah Francis, after a pretty interesting five or six years as a religious leader, as a military leader, as a kind of galvanizing figure, now is no longer alive, and his rejuvenated Native American empire he had envisioned is gone. Josiah Francis, known as Hillis Hajo, or Crazy Brave Medicine, to his people, fought to protect Creek independence and to preserve their culture at any cost. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org where you can binge watch episodes of our television series, Florida Frontiers, listen to archived editions of this program, find great books on Florida history, and more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, the Intracoastal Waterway begins in the Northeast and travels all the way around Florida, right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. The Intracoastal Waterway, or the ICW as it's known, is an inland waterway which actually begins in Boston, Massachusetts, and stretches, as you said, all the way south along Florida's east coast, around the southern tip of Florida into the Gulf, and ends in Brownsville, Texas, so the Rio Grande, essentially. It, It connects the Gulf of Mexico with the northeastern United States. And plans for this type of maritime inland route really began in the 18th century, the beginnings of the United States. There were some talk and publications that came out about a safe way to move supplies along the eastern seaboard. But it really wasn't until the 19th century, at least in Florida, that any kind of formal surveys were conducted. In 1844, in the extreme northeastern part of the state, there were a few surveys that were done connecting places like Fernandina with Jacksonville and St. Augustine. And really, the Intracoastal Waterway is a combination of natural inlets and rivers, streams, and these man-made canals and waterways. So it's kind of a patchwork of these waterways that sort of weave in and out of the eastern coastlines of the states, including Florida, and then, of course, come out into the Gulf of Mexico and on towards Texas and, and other states in the Gulf. But in Florida in the 19th century, again, they started in the 1840s, but it really wasn't until several decades later in the 1880s, 1890s, that any kind of serious work was done to create these man-made canals. And and again, most of that really happened in the northeastern part of the state. And it wasn't until the 20th century, the turn of the 20th century, that two things kind of became catalysts, at least for further expansion down the eastern coast of Florida. The first of which was mechanical innovations, the advent of a steam-driven engine and these steam-driven barges that could very quickly and much more efficiently dig canals. I mean, it was really as basic as that. Rather than using, you know, manpower to dig canals, it could use machines. The other major catalyst was the River and Harbor Act of 1908, and this was a continuation of a series of federal pieces of legislation that were enacted to give funding for improvement of internal waterways throughout the United States. And what the act in 1908 did was essentially allocate and define the federal role and give federal money to what would become a public-private partnership in Florida to develop the intracoastal waterway in Florida. So that all happened at the beginning of the 20th century. The problem, though, with public-private partnerships is the oftentimes the private part. So in the 1920s, a lot of the private interests went bust. So in 1927, the state of Florida created what became the Inland Navigation District, and they bought up all of the private interests along the entire East Coast, and it essentially became a public project, so a state and federally funded project. And that's when it was finally done and finally completed in the 1930s. So Ben, you've pulled from the Florida Historical Society archive a unique publication commemorating the Intracoastal Waterway. 
Yeah, what we're looking at here is a fairly large, it's actually eight and a half by 11, a hardcover book. It's only about 20 pages long, but it's beautifully illustrated with these really nice watercolor paintings of different scenes throughout the east coast of Florida and around the Gulf Coast of Florida, and these really wonderfully posed black and white photographs. And it's entitled, The Commissioners of Florida Inland Navigation District Announced the Completion of the Florida Intracoastal Waterway, Jacksonville to Miami. And it's got the colors of various yacht clubs along the east coast of Florida. And on the cover here, we see this really beautifully done like 1920s era yacht making his way along the coastway. And this was really designed as a uh, PR piece, you know, so this was sent out to different chambers of commerce and places like that to try and promote private use of the Intracoastal Waterway. Because again, this was a decades long project and the state poured a ton of money into it. So they had to sell it to people. It needed to be used for commerce along Florida's east coast. So this was one of those tools at least to do this. But the book we're looking at today is unique in that this was personally inscribed to the commissioner of the Inland Navigation District, a guy named A.M. Taylor. And Taylor's an interesting guy. He was not a native of Florida, but he lived in St. Augustine from about 1888, 1889. He worked for Flagler's Hotel System. He was the head of the casino at the Alcazar. But in the 1920s, he was elected to the Florida State Senate, was reelected twice in 1928 and then in 32. And really his big piece of legislation was the completion of the Intracoastal Waterway. So this was really his baby. And this is his book. So this is his actual final version of the book, the bow on this project that took so many decades to complete. And when we flip through it again, I'd mentioned these really beautifully done watercolor pieces, but they also list places of interest. They list safe ports. So if you're traveling along the east coast of Florida, they list places you can stop, places you can get repairs done on your vessel. They have various maps, the first one from Fernandina down to Cape Canaveral, and then south from Cape Canaveral to Boca Raton, and then around from Miami to the Keys. And again, it includes these really beautifully done black and white photographs. Here are the signs and the pennants for all of the yacht clubs along Florida's east coast. There's a brief history. They even include distances from different channels and canals, and also all of the bridge crossings from the St. John's River all the way down to Miami. So really kind of an informative book, but a great little snapshot of 1930s Florida for sure, and an interesting little piece of the history of this really storied waterway system in Florida. Yeah, an interesting book. The Intracoastal Waterway is still in use today, right? Absolutely. The waterway itself is used primarily by three main groups. So the first would be commerce. So if you walk outside today, anywhere along the east coast of Florida, you'll see barges carrying petroleum products and any kind of manufactured goods, essentially anything you order and, and ship to your home. Oftentimes is it travels on barges. A lot of people don't think about that. But the Intracoastal Waterway plays a key part of that logistical route. The other major group would be recreational boaters, local recreational boaters and fishermen and folks who are just kind of going out and enjoying the waterway for recreational purposes, water skiing, things like that. And lastly, and I don't think a lot of people realize this also, is you know every year there's kind of this mass migration of what we call snowbirds. These are people who live part of the year in the northern part of the United States and then part of the year here in places like Florida in the south and the southeast. And they're traveling either by boat or they're moving their boat. So their yacht from in the wintertime, they come south to Florida. And then in the summertime, they move that boat back up north. And why risk or undergo the hazards of traveling in the open Atlantic when you can take the intracoastal waterway? So you'll see these fleets of large vessels, sailboats, and yachts moving at different times of the year, south or north, depending on the time of the year. So those are really the three main groups, and it's absolutely a big part of Florida's economy today, the recreational economy. But again, also these, these commercial vessels use it today. So it was a big piece of Florida's development, the infrastructure development, and it's really still a big part of Florida's continuing history today. 
Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to see the book we've been discussing on the Intracoastal Waterway, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Louise Smith was a pioneer in stock car racing in Daytona Beach. Zach Barnes, a student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida, has this report. She was born in rural Georgia. She loved anything mechanical. She and her younger brother, they got a hold of her father's Model T. She knew how to start it and how to drive it, but she didn't know how to stop it, and she ended up driving it through the chicken house. She liked driving. She liked speed. She liked being daring and living living life on the edge, if you will. And then, uh, you know, owning a junkyard, she and her husband had uh, access to most any kind of part or car, and uh, she built herself a hot rod, and she used to go tearing up uh, the streets of Greenville, South Carolina, before her driving career. That was Buzz McKim, the official NASCAR historian, discussing the early days of stock car racing legend Louise Smith, known as the First Lady of Racing. Her racing career started in Greenville, South Carolina during the early 1940s. She was discovered by NASCAR co-founder Bill France. Buzz McKim tells me more about the recruitment of Louise Smith. The very first race she ever ran was in Greenville, Bill France, who founded NASCAR, had been promoting the races at the Greenville Pickens Speedway. It was a half-mile dirt track. It's still there, one of the oldest continually run NASCAR tracks in the country. And he was looking for something a little unusual, something to kind of draw more people, maybe kind of a novelty. And so he asked the police, do you have any good lady drivers in the area? And they said, oh, golly, that Louise Smith, yeah, she's a terror on the street. So uh, Bill France convinced her that uh, she needed to become a race car driver. Since the beginning, auto racing has primarily been a male-dominated sport. Women were excluded from participating in the races, as well as assisting in the pits. Louise Smith was one of the first women to break down this barrier, but she and other female drivers were met with extreme prejudice on the track. The lady drivers of that day had to sit in the grandstands, and then before the race, the mechanics or the car owner would bring the car around to the starting line, and the drivers, the female drivers, would have to come out of the stands and drive the car and then go back in the stands. Like many other race car drivers, Louise Smith had a dream to compete in Daytona, which was the main destination for serious stock car racers. In 1949, she entered her first NASCAR race and promptly wrecked her husband Noah's brand new Ford Coupe. Louise Smith had a reputation for being an aggressive driver, which was usually reciprocated with equal aggression. Some men resented Louise's place on the track, while others embraced it. Buddy Schumann, who was one of the real, real stars of back of the day, he was one of the founders of NASCAR, a very good driver, and uh, the first technical inspector. He was really, really good at spinning other people out, and he had a very slick, almost a ballet move of getting onto your uh, left rear corner and just giving you a little tap. And he saw that Louise was really, you know, having a, a hard time out there with the guys giving her a lot of grief. So he taught her his signature move. And uh, she eventually earned the respect of everybody she raced against. Louise Smith raced from 1949 to 1956. In 1999, she became the first woman inducted into the International Motorsports Hall of Fame with 38 wins. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Zachary Barnes. 
a student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. You can also listen to the program as a podcast. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.